Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ivy Academy podcast, where we discuss current topics in leadership and organizations, unpack the latest research in the field, and look at trends across different settings for insights to share with our audience. My name is Mazi Ross, and I'm the Director of Learning Design and Strategy at the Ivy Academy. This episode was originally recorded in March 2021 and is hosted by Mark Healy. The featured guest panelist is John Shell, Managing Director at Social Capital Partners. In this episode, Mark and John explore the potential benefits of an employee ownership model and other ways leaders can start thinking about social responsibility and equality. Without further ado, let's get into it. Good afternoon, all. Thank you for joining us. As we get uh, started, all of us at Ivy would like to recognize the history and tradition of the lands on which Western University, Ivy Business School, and our own Spencer Leadership Center are located today. We acknowledge and respect the traditional lands of the peoples where Western resides connected with the London Township and somber trees of 1796, as well as the dish with one spoon covenant wampum. This land continues to be the home of diverse indigenous peoples whom we recognize as contemporary stewards of the land, vital contributors of our own academic community. We commit to renewing and building on our relationships with indigenous communities through our teaching, our research, and community service. And uh, since we're virtual today, we'd invite all of you to think about the land you share and add your own acknowledgments in the chat. For those of you who've uh, joined us regularly over the last year or so, welcome back. If you've uh, just, just been new to this, then, then welcome. We, we host this series for business leaders and people leaders in our community who are looking for perspectives and, and what has become you know, kind of a long and, and, and tricky time. Bonjour et bienvenue. Si vous avez nous joined là pour nos autres webinaires, merci. Si c'est votre première fois, très bien. On espère que vous trouvez la valeur aujourd'hui. I'm Mark Healy. I'm the executive director of the Ivy Academy. That's the learning and development wing of Ivy Business School in London. Je suis le chef d'éducation exécutif à l'école de commerce IB at l'Université de Western en Ontario. Well, you know, here we are again. It um, it feels a bit like like time is reversing. COVID cases are rising again. Uh, you know, here in Canada, especially in Ontario, it, it's winter again, as you may be able to see from the from the back. You know, maybe we're all in a Chris Nolan film or something. And with you know, with businesses uh, across the country now facing a, a third wave of lockdowns, there are a whole bunch of Canadian households at risk of insolvency. The you know, the full economic impact of COVID, it's 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 been delayed, but it didn't, it's clearly kind of yet to be felt. Um, you know, more alarming is the fallout it has and the way it's been distributed. It's been disproportionately affecting some groups, women, low-wage workers, young people, racialized Canadians, people with disabilities, living with mental illness, rural communities without reliable internet access. So the way we think about it is we're in the same storm, but we're kind of not on the same boat. And this rapid acceleration of wealth and social inequality poses pretty critical questions for policymakers as the country plans for recovery. You know, how do we set the stage for a more inclusive economy? It helps build more resilient communities and businesses. And, you know, in the plainest of English, how do we build back better? About a year ago, at this time, we had, we had John Shell on. He was one of our first guests. We were trying to make sense of what was happening at the time. He's, he's good enough to be joining us again today. Uh, so, so John, welcome back. John's MBA 03. He's Managing Director of Social Capital Partners, working with international companies, funds, and nonprofit partners. SVP has pioneered innovative approaches to social finance and enterprise in Canada since 2001. John's going to help us explore the outlook for Canadian business today. We'll spend uh, you know, a bunch of time on the employee ownership trust model, which he spent uh, a lot of time thinking about and advocating for. It, it did get some love in the recent federal budget, which is great. We'll also discuss some other ways that leaders can start thinking about how to kind of practically uh, build back and about social responsibility and about equality. 
John, uh, let, let's get to you uh, right now. Can you can you start by just a bit of your background, uh, a bit on SCP and kind of what you've been up to for the last year? Sure, Mark, uh, and thanks thanks for having me on again. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about about my background. I was MBA two thousand three, as you said. I uh, um, worked at a consulting company for a couple of years after that and spent about a dozen years uh, buying veterinary practices. Uh, so uh, here in Canada for seven years, uh, co-founded a company called Vet Strategy with a couple of other IV grads from 2003, Orrin and Jason Christie, uh, and then moved to Australia in 2013 because my wife said, we're moving to Australia. She's from Australia and and built uh, a bit of a roll-up of vet practices there as well and came back to Canada in 2017. Uh, my partner, Bill Young at SCP, founded in 2001. The, he had been uh, quite successful in the private sector. I think he was, um, and he and I share this in common, uh, uh, surprised and felt that the world had vastly overcompensated him for his contributions, which I feel as well. And, uh, and so he set up Social Capital Partners to say, okay, how can I use what I've learned in business uh, to help um, spread the great fortune that I've had to other people? You know, there's, there are these structural uh, uh, reasons uh, in our economy that people who look like me and Bill um, get to take advantage of the luck that we've had where lots of people don't. And so for the first 15, 16 years of SCP's path, it was all about how do we help people who are facing barriers to employment get good full-time jobs. 2017, I came back to Canada. I was feeling a bit lost, frankly, you know, and, and I was really worried uh, part of that because of, of, of the industry that I had just come out of. We can talk about that a bit later. Uh, but, uh, you know, we've seen wealth and equality grow. Thomas Piketty had just written a book that talked about how unequal ownership had become in society, how concentrated it had become in society. And I, and I was worried about these things and I wanted to do something different. A new Bill, we hooked up again. He said, why don't you come join me? You know, so, so we're independently funded by, by Bill and me. Um, you know, our objective is to uh, dig in on areas where we think we can directly or indirectly change some of these structural issues that we face. And because we're independently funded, we, we try and take big risks. So we try to, we try to uh, you know, we failed a bunch of times, but we try to go for things that other people can't go for because they have other funders that are pressuring them to do this and that. And so, so you know, uh, we're a nonprofit. I, I, I don't know if I mentioned that. Uh, uh, you know, because we are relatively small, we also try to engage with government. We try to engage in public policy wherever we can, because, you know, there's a lot of structural challenges that we can't have any influence on uh, directly. Um, so, you know, the last year, you said, so, uh, so uh, in, in when I joined in 2017, we shifted from this focus on how do we help people get full-time jobs to how do we help people uh, um, own things, right? So if we have too much ownership concentration, if we have continued and increasing ownership concentration, that will lead to permanent wealth inequality unless you can break that down somehow. So how do you think about breaking down ownership and spreading it as broadly as possible? And so we've been working on a number of different ideas in that. I will talk about this a bit later, but we landed on employee ownership as the most scalable and sustainable way to broaden uh, ownership and, and, and a way we can directly influence. So that's what we're working on. I'm sure we'll talk about that. Uh, and the other thing that, that, uh, that I've spent time on last year, and the reason I was on that call, I think a year ago, is when the pandemic hit and the government came out with, here's what we're gonna do to support small business. Here's what we're gonna do to support people. This was input in early March or mid-March. I got very concerned because we'd spent all this time thinking about inequality, the different types of jobs that people have, the different ex exposures that they had, and the things we were going to do to uh, uh, face the uh, implications of shutting down businesses all over the country 
seemed incredibly feeble in terms of what it was trying to achieve. And so I wrote an article and said, here's, here's uh, where we're headed. And, and I'm really worried about the unequal outcomes uh, of our approach here. And that article went viral and it led to us starting something called Safe Small Business. And so for about six months between uh, end of March and kind of end of October, uh, I worked with a couple of other people on this organization called Safe Small Business, ended up having 38,000 businesses sign up within like three weeks of us starting. It was a crazy uh, ride, but we ended up being the ones who fought for rent relief. You know, the rent relief program that wasn't so good at the beginning, that became really good after Christian Freeland took over as finance minister, That's that was largely driven by our actions in March and April. Uh, you know, as with everybody else, it's been a very unusual uh, year, but that gives you a bit of, of, of uh, insight into into what we've been up to. Thanks, thanks for that. So we're going we're gonna to definitely get into the employee ownership side of things. We're going to start a little bit more balcony view. And I was thinking this morning when I was doing my prep, you know, I, I give this, I get asked to do talks once in a while. I give this talk. And the, the last time I gave it was in, it was in Toronto in the sort of real world, right, right before COVID locked everything down. And I, I sort of start by saying, you know, in your feed, you, you, you only read about two kinds of businesses. You read about the big blue chips that um, generate a ton of wealth, to be honest, for lots of folks. And you read about the startups that are raising a ton of money, right? And I have this thing about the North American economy, sort of a war with itself. You never read about small, medium-sized businesses that are actually trying to employ people and make and make money, right? Except now you did a year and change later, and unfortunately for the for the wrong reasons because they're suffering, you know, largely in a, in, a, in a big way. And so, you know, I know I know we don't want to dwell on this point for too long today, but I would like to start with, you know, kind of what's your perspective on the the state and the kind of outlook for small business in Canada? Well, I mean, I think, I think you got to separate them into into different categories. Um, I think the one that, that I've been focused on has been the one where, you know, that, that are facing the most dire situation, which is anywhere where you need to go in order to get a service. And I think this is news, right? Everybody on, on this, on this uh, webinar will be incredibly aware of the challenges faced by the barbershops, the coffee shops, the daycares, you know, you know direct person-to-person contact, small businesses. And look, the outlook, the outlook is, is exactly what you would expect it to be. It's incredibly dire. I mean, this has been a over a year. Who would have thought we'd be here 13 months later or whatever it is uh, still talking about this? Um, you know, the CFIB estimates the average small business in, in, in you know, uh, their members borrowed something like $180,000. They're looking at 200,000 um, bankruptcies over the next period of time. You know, people are hanging on by a thread. We have to acknowledge things have improved uh, uh, since Christian Freeland took over. I mean, that that is fact. You know, the, the two major problems before was kind of the structure of some of the programs plus uh, the uncertainty of them. They'd be renewed every month, but after the month it ended and, and she's fixed that, which is which is great. Um, but it doesn't take away the fact that we, we haven't handled the pandemic very well. COVID still rages and businesses remain shut. The, the debt loads, so, and it's not just debt loads, right? So if you think about your average small business, uh, it's debt load, it's um, deferred, Rent in very many cases, um, it's it's a bunch of other deferred costs. They often owe suppliers. Their suppliers then don't have money, and so on it goes. Uh, so it's it's dire, and I think we don't know yet uh, what happens once we are largely vaccinated. I mean, does it go back to normal? You know, is, is it slow? Is it slow for some industries and not for others? And so, you know, there's been this unequal application of an incredible dire situation, incredibly dire situation. And some, but, but those that are facing it have incredible debt loads and no real path to paying them back. You talked a bit about what, you know, when we were 
sort of thinking about this, you talked a bit about sort of the daisy chain of bankruptcy and how it's kind of not as easy as it is glamorized in some ways. You don't you don't just sort of start over. Can you can you talk about the sort of practical side of that? Like why is that true? So let's say you want to open a uh, whatever barbershop. You go get your loan if you can, and then you sign your lease and you personally guarantee your lease. And the personal guarantee in your lease and potentially on your loan, that's the problem. Because you might have a corporation, that's fine. That corporation goes bankrupt, that's fine. You're personally liable for that uh, lease, so you need to go personally bankrupt. Uh, once you go personally bankrupt, that's about seven years you're in the penalty box, right, before you can properly get a loan again and start again. So um, uh, if you think about the relatively small percentage of our economy who's willing to do that, right? You put your name, I'm, I've done this, right? So, so the reason I have a sympathy or empathy for all of this is that I was a small business owner in a plaza right before I did my MBA. And I had my name on a lease and the feeling of, and, and our business didn't go that well. It was, a, it was not a very good business and we uh, um, operated it poorly. Uh, and, and, and so the feeling of being trapped was palpable. And so you have these hundreds of thousands of people who feel trapped across the country by the personal guarantees that they have committed to and then this thing has happened that was no fault of their own. Uh, insurance isn't paying out. So unless we can figure out a way, and this is, you know, we talk about uh, what we should do for these businesses. We haven't done a very good job of planning ahead, right? So if we think about, you know, the next six months or the next year, the last, the, the most recent budget had has extended a bunch of the uh, supports for small business. That's great. But we're not thinking about uh, what happens when these businesses go bankrupt or if they have to go bankrupt. And, and what if they are so afraid of going bankrupt, which many small business owners are, that they don't go bankrupt, even though they should, right? So they've got these businesses that they are just running in order to survive. They're barely paying their bills. Their families don't have any money, but they're doing it because they, they are so afraid of bankruptcy and what that means, because it's complicated, confusing, and scary. But I haven't heard anyone talk about that and say, okay, well, maybe we should be making bankruptcy easier, right, for that set of businesses and say, look, we screwed you, right? We made you shut down. We didn't provide you quick enough supports. We gave you loans that you'll never be able to pay back. Your business can't support that. Um, let's find another path for you to start again, right? But we're not we're not talking about that at all. Uh, you know, again, planning ahead. So so we get uh, vaccinated, but we're probably still going to have localized outbreaks, right? So when we shut down Save Small Business in October, one of our recommendations was: look, you're going to have sort of hotspot based flare-ups of the virus probably for a long time. We need to organize around that in a very specific way. So, you know, so it's not like, okay, uh, wage supports for everybody. It's okay, the town of whatever it is, Galt, right, has had a flare up and it has a real problem, has to shut down uh, for a period of time. While we do contract tracing, whatever it is we do, we need a SWAT team to go in there and make sure that we shut those businesses down, make sure that rent's being paid by somebody who is, you know, just do all the things to freeze those businesses and those employees while that hotspot's taken care of. And that way we can keep the economy going as opposed to having all of this uncertainty. But we're not talking about that either. So so we, we, we really have to, um, I think, step back and say, okay, what's the long-term answer here um, and start to prepare for that. And that, that's where I think the gaps are. I want to get to learnings before we we shift gears. You know, so I guess two fronts. You know, what are so what are we as a, a, a business community? What what are we learning through this? And then I, you've had a lot of conversations yourself with policymakers, which is cool, right? And I, I'd like to know what you learned in those conversations as well. I think one of the things we've learned, uh, and we'll probably talk more about this later, is we're in it together is the biggest pile of BS uh, you can imagine. 
So, you know, if you go back to March of last year, it was like, okay, we're in it together. What is the government going to do for us? Right. That's what, what, it, what we're in it together. What did the banks do? Right. And we should talk about that. What, what, and what didn't they do? Let's just use the small business example. You take your, you know, a small business that's paying rent to a landlord who has a mortgage and you trace all that back and you generally it's the bank who has the mortgage. What you could have said uh, back in March is, okay, what the banks are going to do is they're going to stop payment on mortgage on commercial mortgages because these businesses are closed and in exchange for the landlord not charging rent or charging a certain percentage of rent over over uh, you know the next whatever three months um and then we'll be able to kind of get through this next three month period we're going to tack that mortgage on to the end we're not going to charge you interest in that period of time we're going to get our money banks we're just going to get it maybe three months later fine the landlord's going to get their money we'll tack on three months to at least there could have been an all-in approach to this yeah. that would not have affected the long-term share price of anything might have cost a little bit of cash in the medium term, fine, but it wouldn't affect. But, but we didn't do any of that. There's a there's a, a level of humility required, I think, in the business community about what was not done during the pandemic and especially at the start of the pandemic. In terms of politicians, so mostly I've talked to like policy people who work for politicians. It's frankly fascinating. I'm I have been shocked by how young they are. So I would say the average age of, of, of has been like maybe in their late 20s dealing with these massive issues. Not that they're not capable of doing it, but there's not a ton of, of, of real life experience in that, but incredibly dedicated, incredibly smart, really wanting to do the right thing. Uh, but in a lot of cases, lacking some amount of knowledge and experience uh, in order to tackle some of these problems. It's, it's just, it's been really interesting. I mean, I mean, super hardworking, but again, other countries brought in folks with very specific experience to help with some of this planning. You know, Australia is, you know, there's a lot we can learn from Australia uh, in terms of, of how they dealt with the pandemic. That's one of the things they did. And that was super helpful to them, right? We didn't do that. Yeah. Uh, you know, we had a lot of conversations where we had a great conversation and, and then the response would be, okay, we're going to take what you said, we're going to go away and we're going to design something. And that's why rent relief was so bad the first time, right? Like, like you know, they, they sort of went away and designed it. They wanted to do the right thing, but they didn't um, because it got messed up in you know, bureaucracy and they didn't understand some of the practical implications. So I think both of those things are combined in a way in, in that I think there's a lack of trust from government. Uh, uh, to business in terms of being able to trust that they can bring them in and, and, and have, you know, kind of practical conversations with the right objectives. Uh, and then business didn't step up either. And that led to some pretty suboptimal results, which is a shame. It didn't have to go that way and didn't go that way in every country. You know, that was my experience of, of, of working through some of these things. You know, there's a, for us, there's a small amount of sort of irony in this. because We do a fair amount of, of programming here for directly with government. And, you know, a couple of really good people, Richard Discerny and Paul Booth, started to an initiative with with us a long time over 10 years ago and the fundamental premise was government doesn't know how to talk to business and business doesn't know how to talk to government the, the, the americans are actually better those mesh points are actually quite well understood and they're they're entrenched and here it's there's a sort of awkward divide we we, we do a fair amount of that work i would just i i guess i would echo that that there's it, you know, it's too bad that there's this sort of structural divide because it it has it has hurt us. You know, in the in this time frame. And I have interested in your perspective on this market because my my observation is that for business for business leaders that I've talked to, um, there's a disrespect of government, right? So there's sort of a government is incompetent, government you know uh, um, uh, can't do anything, and so there's a level of arrogance that gets brought to the table. And then on the government side, there's like a distrust of business, a view that whatever they they suggest is going to generally be, you know, for their own best interest, that there's sort of a, there's always going to be 
two two angles, right? That we're not going to get a genuine. I'm going to help even if if it. So I, so that's what I observed, um, and you can see why that would lead to not very good conversations and not very practical outcomes. I, I don't know if that fits with what you've seen. I think that fits, you know, pretty well. I, I, you know, every time we get we get one of these programs together with these gatherings together, you know, we work with this with this this nice guy in Toronto, uh, Misha Gluberman, who's who's he's got his own course called how to talk to people about things <laughs> which is pretty good right and we we tried that for a while and it, that's what this that's what this conversation needs is just yeah. better mutual understanding i was learning all, every time i talk to the bureaucrats about the number of issues that they're trying to weigh off yeah. right and uh the the number of stakeholders that they're trying to and they're trying to do their their best and mobilize their way through, you know, workforce of 10 or 20,000 folks and sort of communication chains. And at the same time, a handful of, you know, experts or informed opinions in sort of 30 minute bursts would help a lot. There's a fair amount more I wanted to do in, in this section, but we're, we're up against it on, on time. Sean, I'm going to, I'm going to turn it over to you. Sure. Thanks, Mark. So obviously we do want to get into the employee ownership question. We, you know, we talked about that quite a bit in the prep and we've reframed the session uh, about around that. You sent over some great articles. Maybe we'll just start with some, some level setting. Can you, can you tell us a bit more about what employee ownership trusts are and what you've seen? Yeah, for sure. Why don't I step back and say our objective at SCP was to find the most uh, scalable way to broaden ownership in the private sector, right? That's what we're trying to do. And, and we, we scanned around for uh, anything we could find, and we found the, the United States employee stock ownership. And we're kind of overwhelmed by how successful it. We had never heard of it. But uh, ESOPs in the U.S. have, uh, there are 14 million Americans who own shares of their companies through an ESOP. Um, they own $1.4 trillion worth of corporate wealth in 6,400 uh, companies, average of $100,000 per person. Um, uh, these are broadly owned, right? So, so an ESOP in the US, part of one of the rules is it has to be owned by all of the employees, right? And not just top management. Otherwise, you can't, you can't qualify for all the tax breaks. And there are these tax breaks, right? So as an, if an owner sells to an ESOP, they pay no, no capital gains tax. Once the company becomes an ESOP, they, they pay no corporate tax. We're like, oh my God, this thing is great. Why do we not know about this? Why aren't there more of them? Uh, and, and so just to give you a sense of, of how it works, if I'm a, uh, and then we'll kind of talk about, about where they came from. If I'm the owner of a company, I can sell to, you know, I set up an ESOP trust, right, in the US. I then loan the value of the company back to the company. And then uh, the company pays me back over time. All the shares get transferred to the ESOP trust, right? So on day one, the company has zero, the shares are worth nothing because the uh, company, let's say, is worth $100 million and it owes $100 million. And then over time, it pays back that debt to the owner and the share value goes up and that and the value all accrues to the employees. Those shares are given out over time. So it doesn't all go to the employees that happen to be there at the time. It goes, you know, it goes in perpetuity. And then and then these tax breaks are, and then the owner can get, can go and get debt from a bank as well. So, so they get some cash up front. You know, companies like Publix, I don't know if you know Publix, the grocery chain uh, out in Florida, 200,000 employees, one of the largest privately owned companies in the world is employee owned. Gore-Tex is employee owned. Um, at Taylor Guitars, which we'll talk about in a minute, is employee owned. Cliff Bar. And so, you know, we asked the question, why, why isn't there more of this? And what we heard was there wasn't enough upfront capital, right? So, so if I'm an owner of a company, I got a choice between I'm going to sell to private equity, 
I'm going to sell to my competitor. I'm going to sell to my employee. Right? If I, if I, uh, I am generally going to, you know, if I, if I have an advisor, they're going to tell me to do one of the first two things. So I'll get, uh, you know, I'll get more money up front. And so an owner will choose one of those paths because of the amount they're sacrificing up front. However, employee-owned companies grow faster. And they've been studied for 40 years. These things have been placed for 40 years in the U.S. They grow faster. They uh, are bankrupt much less often. They are more resilient in recessions. Uh, they pay their employees more. So the, the companies actually perform better versus a private equity-owned company or a publicly-owned company. And so they should be lower risk, right? And they should be able to attract lots of debt. And so our, our, our objective was to say, well, listen, um, if we want to take a big shot at something, what we need to do is get more money into this market. We need to make it easier for an owner to say, I'm going to choose to sell to my employees versus selling to private equity. And if we can shift companies away from private equity and towards their employees, we will do uh, wonderful things for wealth inequality. So let's focus on that. And so what we do is we work with pension funds to try to find funds for transitioning uh, companies in the U.S. Our first deal was Taylor Guitars, which we did in December. Taylor Guitars is a 1,200-employee company, uh, the largest manufacturer of acoustic guitars in the U.S., and we uh, um, uh, funded it alongside the Healthcare of Ontario Pension Plan. In the, and that was the first time uh, one of these transitions has ever been funded uh, by an institution who uh, loves this deal, right? Because not only is it a great company, I mean, it really is a great company, uh, but they got a reasonable rate of return. It's a long-term investment, so the capital match is perfect, right? The company needs a long-term uh, debt. Uh, who wants their money out long-term, so so that's great. Uh, and they can tell the story, right, about how now what we have done at Hoop, right? We are, we are a pension fund preserving wealth on behalf of the 99% has, have just helped this company transition to their employees. It fits perfectly with what we're to do. And so if we can... Uh, uh, make that capital flow in that way, we should be able to massively expand the ESOP market in the U.S., and, 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 that, and that's our objective. One quick interesting thing about the ESOP, it was created by uh, a Republican, a, a rabid anti-communist in the 50s, who said what we need to do if capitalism... So he saw in the 50s uh, um, uh, wealth inequality, which is sort of hilarious in hindsight, and he said, you know, the, the capitalism is not going to be able to survive with increasing wealth inequality. So he was wrong about that, but that's okay. Um, and Or at least he so far has been wrong about that. And he said, okay, well, what we need to do is make everyone a capitalist. Everyone needs to benefit from uh, ownership in uh, in society. Everyone needs to benefit from growth of companies. We want to align incentives to an organization. So he created this as a lawyer in California for a bunch of different folks. And then the senator got interested and he was able to get it into uh, um, the their Retirement Act back in the mid-70s. But it stemmed from a everyone should be a capitalist uh, point of view. Since then, it's been bipartisan in terms of, of its support. Obviously, it's great for workers. And so Republicans and Democrats have continued to make it better uh, over time. So anyway, so, so, the one, so the one thing we think we can do is, is help fund it with better capital, more capital to make it easier for our to do to choose to do this. The other is we can bring it to Canada. So in Canada, we have no employee ownership trusts. Uh, we have a bunch of different trusts. None of them there's a, there's a problem with each of them in trying to do this. We have some employee-owned companies, but very, very few. So uh, Ellis Dawn is one of the best examples of them. And Jeff Smith is a massive CEO and their family is, uh, and transitioned Ellis Dawn to their employees over time, is a massive proponent of this, but it has been incredibly hard for him to do it. Both breweries trying to do it, but it's going to take a long time. It is not as accessible because employees need to buy into it as opposed to getting the shares for free, which is what happens through this, this sort of leveraged buyout for employees that is the ESOP. So we've been working for the last uh, six months to bring 
Employee Ownership Trust to Canada. They exist in the UK, right? So the UK brought this in in 2014. Uh, they've advertised it. They've provided tax incentives for it, and it's gone crazy. So last year alone, almost 100 companies became employee ownership trusts uh, in, in the UK. We think the same thing will happen here. CFIB just did a study that showed Canadian owners were really interested in this concept. So we've been pushing it and, and we were very fortunate. Uh, um, I think timing and all things kind of uh, uh, led to this, but, but this federal government put in the most recent budget a commitment to explore employee ownership trusts. We think due at least in part to, to our advocacy, we've had a lot of good conversations with them. Uh, and so that's super exciting. Right. So, so, so those are two objectives. We've, we've managed to sort of start down the path on each of those. Um, uh, but if you can instill those types of things, this is, these are the structural changes that we need to talk about. If we're going to beat back wealth inequality, we need real structural changes, of which this is a small one. There's so much more we need to do, but this is a small structural change that will, on its own, lead to broadening ownership and less inequality. Just as I listen to you talk about this, you know, I can imagine lots of financial benefits for a company, right? And you touched on some of them being able to attract debt. But I want to I dig into that idea of resilience that you also mentioned. With either companies that you've seen this work or, or now having done this deal with Taylor, how does it impact the resilience of the company? And how, how would you define that? You know, this won't be a surprise, but, but ownership matters and the incentives of owners matter in terms of what happens in a downturn, what happens when an industry struggles. You know, in the guitar industry, for example, uh, um, uh, Taylor Guitars has gone through ups and downs, but has has been successful. Um, Guitar Centers of America uh, was bought by private equity um, and laid laid down with a ton of debt, and has spent 15 years trying to figure that out. Right, so they've been bankrupt, I think, twice uh, in in that process. If you look at the grocery industry, right, so so I think there are some there there are very very large uh, grocers in the U.S. that are employee owned. None of them have ever ever gone bankrupt, right? They're all, all quite successful. Most of them family-owned the transition to employee, employee ownership. There have been 12 bankruptcies in the U.S. in grocery uh, um, since uh, 2015, 11 of them owned by private equity. The other one was a failed acquisition by Kroger, who just changed their strategy and then abandoned. They're like, oh, well, we don't need this anymore. We're going to bankrupt. So a bunch of people lost their jobs. You know, it, uh, studies in recessions, right? So there's been a massive study of the financial crisis. Uh, Employee-owned companies massively outperformed in terms of layoffs and bankruptcies. And the reason is um, um, you have uh, people in the organization who are willing to sacrifice in tight time, right? So it's not a mystery, right? So if the employees own the company and say, okay, well, we may have to take a lower salary for a period of time, but we know that when things come back, we're going to be the ones that benefit, right? For uh, financial owners who generally don't live in the community, don't care about the community, sometimes have never been to the community, right, other than when they were trying to buy the company, there's a, just a different uh, motivation. Um, and so th the more our economy is owned by people who don't live in communities, people who don't uh, know the employees of that company, people who don't know the clients and customers, the, the, the more we are going to be not resilient because the less we are going to sacrifice when things go bad. So, I mean, in, in the example of Taylor or others you've seen, what are some of the signs for ownership and management that, that this is something worth considering? You know, when, what context does this work? So, so the, the, there's a spectrum of ways for, for employee ownership to happen, right? From worker co-ops for smaller uh, firms to uh, stock option plans for public companies and DSUs and RSUs at, at Bank of Montreal or whatever it is, uh, um, uh, uh, to tech companies where there's a ton of stock options and it makes a ton of sense that that's how it works. This, there's a set of companies that aren't covered by any of that. And that's kind of traditional companies mature in mature industries owned by 
private people, private individuals or private groups and families where there's really no option other than the employee ownership trust to transition uh, to employees. Companies that choose this path, uh, you know, and these things are all still done at market value. Like the, like the owners do get their full value over time. Bob Taylor and Kurt Listow are going to get full value for Taylor over time. Uh, um, uh, uh, you know, they're just choosing to accept a longer term uh, time horizon, but tend to be uh, um, uh, owners who care deeply about their communities, right? Who who have been in their communities for a long time, who live in their communities, um, businesses who have strong cash flows in 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 uh, um, uh, sort of mature industries where the debt repayment is is pretty good uh, or is, is manageable, and larger employee bases. So so anything from kind of fifty employees to like the publics, I suppose, two hundred thousand employees. But generally, the median in the U.S. is ninety. The median in 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 the U.K. is around sixty. Those are the types of businesses that tend to choose. This path, and if you hear Bob and Kurt talk about it, uh, Kurt's amazing when he talks about this. He says, "Listen, um, I've seen friends of mine in in this industry lose their jobs. Uh, um, I've seen, you know, my client, you know, the, these the guitar centers and uh, uh, struggle. I've seen Fender struggle under financial ownership, and I'm just not going to do that to Taylor, right? He, he, he's like, I, I want Taylor to be around in 200 years. We're working on all this cool stuff in terms of." wood preservation and, and, you know, and we've been in this community for 45 years. We started it out of this, you know, record shop down the street or, or, or sorry, guitar shop down the street. And, and I don't, I don't want to sell to, you I mean, Gibson will buy me in a, in a heartbeat. I don't want to sell to them. I want my culture preserved. And so for them, all this stuff lined up. And if the ownership, if the employee ownership trust didn't exist, there was no path for them. And so, so, you know, we need to create different alternatives for people with different objectives. And we need those alternatives to have incentives that enable them to work. Right. And that's, you know, it spans a number of different areas, but that's what the employee ownership trust does. It's a very compelling case and you can see why why it's been successful in the U.S., why it's taking off so aggressively in the U.K. So, you know, A, why don't we see it more in Canada and and what needs to change? Uh, look, I, I don't know if there's been any uh, ill intent. I, I I don't think people know about it. I think it's just a matter of, of generally in the UK and the US was was sort of a group or a person who said, you know, this is an interesting idea. We're going to start pushing this. And I think that and I, I think that just hasn't happened in Canada yet. So I, so there's a real openness to it. There's not a real, you know, there was a, I think what we had to get past was the, the idea that we have a bunch of flexible trusts in Canada. So what do we need this for? Why don't you just use some of the trusts that exist? And so we had to walk through all the reasons why the trusts that exist don't work for this, why you need something specific both to advocate for and to apply policy to, to, to incent it. And so we've kind of got past that and now we're in, into a, a better spot. And um, what needs to happen? So, so three things. Uh, uh, one, you need the, the trust and the trust needs to have rules associated with it that ensures that employees are taken care of, that, that the, the uh, price paid is fair, that it's market value. Um, so there's a bunch of, of rules that go along with the trust that, that need to be set up. So that's that's a public policy question that we have to do that in law. Uh, two, you need to incent it in some way. So you either use a capital gains incentive like they've done in the UK and the US, or you find some other incentive. There's a bunch of different options, but kind of sort that out. Um, and then three, you need to uh, um, promote it. Right. So, so I think once any tax change happens, all of the uh, um, professionals in that industry will start to learn about it and want to understand it. And so it'll, some of it will happen on its own. But Scotland, for example, has, does a great job of promoting these things. And the result, there's, there's a lot more than there. I mean, there's states in the U.S. that do a great job. So Vermont, Colorado, uh, states that have a lot of employee ownership or states that promote it. So those are the three things we need to do. Um, all of them are eminently doable. And there's a playbook and a path to follow. Uh, is there 
Uh, is there a history of multiples differing between sort of employee employee trust and and say strategic buyers? Totally. So so, so um, I should you, you in this environment um, uh, uh, that happens a lot, um, and so there are certain industries where this doesn't work. Right, just. Plain and simple. Um, a lot of that is due to other things that uh, hopefully we'll talk about. But um, I mean, but in a lot of industries, it does work. So any, anywhere up to about a ten times multiple, maybe eleven times multiple, you can get an ESOP done, right? Uh, um, once you get above that, uh, it becomes a real challenge. And so, so just in this environment, it is it is a bit challenging. Uh, um, but there is there are a ton of industries where eleven, twelve, ten, nine, eight, those multiples actually are real and and work where ESOPs work work well. Uh, just as we as we wrap this uh you know section up what's what is next for you john on this journey like do you have a next step here on on the so, so um uh as far as sep is concerned we're all in on this on this ownership concept i mean so we're, we're going to continue to push uh, on the canadian policy we're going to continue to do deals in the u.s we're super excited about that they're really fun yeah. uh, the closing dinner for the for and the closing zoom call for taylor guitars was something I, like i've never seen in terms of the passion and enthusiasm and then we want to we we, we want to broaden this concept of of ownership impact right so uh, um you know, there's so many different ways in which the economy is getting owned by, you know, a bunch of white dudes. Um, you know, one of those ways is the search fund market, right? So search funds primarily, uh, especially in the U.S., um, are, are funds where young white men generally who, who went to Harvard and Stanford, uh, funded by other uh, uh, older white men who, who went to Harvard and Stanford, uh, go out and buy smaller businesses uh, competing against uh, private equity with a financial structure that is um, not great, right? That forces the sale of that company generally in, in, in not too long a time um, and puts a lot of pressure on growth, uh, which may not be right for that company, but that's that's the way that structure works. Um, and so, you know, uh, um, there there should be ways to make that more inclusive, uh, uh, both for people who work in industry and people who are not white men. There's there's how do we think about small business, right? Right. So so you know, financialization has driven um, roll ups all over the place, which of course I can talk about, and I'm somewhat being responsible for, which is reducing pathways to ownership at driven by low interest rates, driven by pension fund funding. So we want to explore that as much as we can. So there's a couple things we're really going to do, and then we're going to try to talk more and work more on what are the other ways in which we can start to broaden ownership so that we can start to, to reduce uh, concentration of, of ownership in, in the economy. Are you seeing, uh, you, you talked about who, and you know, we know a fair amount about hoop in this country. Are you seeing other, I would I would say larger kind of traditional players, are they starting to galvanize around this idea? Are they taking interest in this idea in some way? Look, I, I think there's some pension fund interest in this. Uh, and, uh, um, you know, there are these impact funds. I don't know if you're referring to those, but by, by some of the larger private equity funds. So so take take uh, Apollo, for example. They've, they've got a new uh, impact fund, but they pay their people the same and their expectations on return are the same. So I don't actually understand that. Right. So so, so if, if you're if you want a 25 percent IRR on company X and you have an impact fund where you also want a 25 percent IRR on company Y, why didn't you just buy that with the first 
with the first refund? Like, what's the what's the difference? It, well, it, I mean, this this is the point, right? And and I think that there's a guy called Tarek Fancy. I don't know if you if you've seen it. He came out swinging against BlackRock. He he set up their sustainability practices and then came and said it's all a bunch of bullshit. Um, uh, and so I think there is a lot of branding going on. Uh, um, uh, but I do think there are people within those organizations that genuinely want to do different things, and we just need to give them uh, ways to do different things that don't don't exist right now. And just quickly on the decision-making, as someone made the point that in EOTs, the workers don't make decisions, uh, that's 100% true, and that's that's actually a feature. We love co-ops, absolutely love them, but they're not a practical way to transition a company that's been governed you know, hierarchically for 60 years can't become a worker co-op tomorrow. It just is not practical. So so one of the reasons why Hoop invested, one of the reasons why it's an investable idea, the trust, is that the the approach to managing the company doesn't change, right? So so, so all it does is just benefit those employees more. And and so that's that's a good thing for what, for that big part of the economy we're trying to affect. You said uh, a few minutes ago, you know, you've been hard at work on this idea, but it's not the only idea out there in terms of what would help with wealth distribution inequality. Can you talk about some of the others, you know, whether you're involved with them or not, just what are, what are some of the other pieces of the puzzle? Look, I think if we want to broaden this, so, so, so I think uh, um, there's a general agreement that we have two big problems. One is climate change and one is wealth inequality. Right. Those are the two big problems we need we need to we need to solve. I'm passionate about the climate change stuff, but I don't know much about it. But on the wealth and equality side, like if we if we really want to uh, um, affect that, it is going to require structural change to how we think about the economy. There aren't enough EOT type ideas uh, uh, to fix this problem. This problem requires government action, um, and I think we are slowly starting to see that happen. Right. So so if we think about Taxation, but so there's like a government role, and then there's a, a business community role. And I'll talk a little brief, briefly about the government role, and then what I what I think about the business community role. But take tax, for example. Janet Yellen has come out in favor of working on a global level on uh, um, corporate tax, which I think is wonderful, right? And and I and I think you know we've indicated that we're supportive of that in Canada. We don't have a lot of sovereignty over our tax here, right? Because of how tied we are to the U.S. We've done trade deals, we've done uh, uh, deals on capital flows, we've done, but we've never done a deal on tax, which is bizarre, right? So what's happened is tax competition, right? Which has completely eroded the base. You know, you have you know, is, is there a reason why Google and Facebook have headquarters in Ireland? There's literally no reason other than there's the tax competition. Tax competition is completely destructive, provides no value, and we shouldn't have it if we're going to have a global... You can't have a globalized economy and allow tax competition. It's insane. You know, capital gains tax, right? We, we're going to need to think about capital gain tax and how it works. It was brought in to encourage investment. What it encourages right now is the buying and selling of things. And the buying and selling of things is what drives financialization, it what drives ownership, not being connected to, to communities and employees. Uh, um, so... Are we thinking about capital gains tax in the right way? And should we be thinking about it differently? And that's moving faster in the U.S. now than it's moving up here. A lot of things are moving faster in the U.S. now than they're moving up here. Monopoly is another example of that. You have Lena Khan is about to be nominated to the FTC in the, in the U.S. She's talking about antitrust against a lot of people. It's great. We we just we, we went away from that for thirty years for bad reasons. Uh, um, we attached it to to consumer price, which is nonsense. In Canada, we are decades behind. So I've actually just read a lot of our guidelines for antitrust, and it's like you'd be shocked uh, at the types of things that they're worried about. Some money was put into that in the budget, but we need to focus on 
monopoly and the power of oligarchic uh, industries here in Canada. Uh, digital infrastructures. So, so um, you know, Mariana Mazzucato is, a, is an economist in the UK that, that we need to be paying attention to. She's talking about mission-based programs on behalf of government. I think we need to be doing those types of things to build the type of infrastructure that we need. And then our support system is, is a mess, right? So, so we have transitioned from a, a full-time employee economy to a non-full-time employee economy. And we haven't made, we haven't transitioned any of our systems, right? So, so if you are apply, if you want to rent an apartment, at least this was true a couple of years ago in Toronto, you needed a letter for your employer, right? If you worked in the gig economy, that I means it just was completely impractical. Childcare works based on full-time jobs. Uh, um, uh, retirement works based on full-time jobs. We haven't started to transition. So there's a ton of stuff that the government needs to do, uh, uh, um, you know, to create a, a more uh, inclusive economy. From the business community side, I mean, I, I have a bit of a challenge here. My challenge is I think the business community, frankly, just needs to be an ally and in, 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 in some cases get out of the way and, and maybe be a bit more humble. I mean, we, we, in the business community, uh, wait with bated breath for Larry Fink's email every or Larry Fink's letter every year. You know, Larry Fink in January of this year, you know, was talking and, you know, people asked him about regulation. And he said, you know, I prefer uh, capitalists self-regulate. And this is really important, right? Because this is a guy who people uh, look to as one of the uh, main proponents of sustainable investing. And so, so to break that down, first of all, he's defining capitalists as business people. Like, why? Politicians are capitalists. Bureaucrats are capitalists. The workers are generally capitalists, not the younger workers so much anymore for good reason, but uh, workers are generally capitalists. Uh, um, so so you're, you're creating this, this distance, right, in a way that doesn't make sense. And self-regulate, what does that mean? What, what, you know, if we want to shift climate change, if we want to shift wealth inequality, business self-regulation isn't going to get us there. And so this is where business, I think, takes a bit of, you know, of an arrogant approach to this and says, we know what's best, right? Leave it to us and we'll figure it out. The problem is you can't come up with a single example of that ever working. Not one. You can't find one structural social issue that was solved by the private sector, right? The private sector is a good actor and an important actor in the economy uh, in, in fair markets, right? But the government is required to make those structural changes. And the business community should be a bit more humble, I think, and be an ally and be supportive of making those changes in a practical way. And then those dialogues will start again, right? Or, or, or start for the first time between a supportive business community and a government that trusts uh, the business community um, so we can actually be practical about how we make these structural changes. So that's, that's, that's my challenge. I, you know, I think, I think uh, um, you know, we, we, we as business leaders often uh, dismiss government in a way that is very destructive. We talked a fair amount in the last year about there's a, there's a big difference between business doing their job to kind of maximize shareholder returns, which create does create wealth, and business having a duty of care for the economy and the societies yeah. different they operate. Those are two very different things. We're not very good at, at duty of care. Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode. We would like to extend further thanks to our guest host, Mark Healy and our guest panelist, John Shell, for taking the time to share their insights and expertise with us. The Ivy Academy podcast is produced by Melissa Welsh, Sean Ecklin-Grant, and Joanna Shepard, editing an audio mix by Carol Eugene Park. If you like this episode, make sure to subscribe for similar content in the future. If you want to learn more about how employee ownership can help create a more inclusive economy, we've provided resources and links in a blog post on our website. You can also visit ivyacademy.com or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Instagram using the handle 
at Ivy Academy to view our upcoming events, services, and programs. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you with us for the next episode.